The Brazilian report was shortlisted for several categories of the Digiday Media Awards, including Best Podcast for this show. The results will be out on June 20th, so fingers crossed. This week's podcast is supported by Dalpozo Advogados. Dalpozo represents some of Brazil's biggest infrastructure groups and helps foreign clients navigate the country's complicated legal and regulatory system. And before we start this week's show, I'd like to remind you that the Brazilian Report is funded by subscriptions and support from loyal readers, as well as subscribing to our website and getting exclusive daily content on Brazil and Latin America. You can also treat our staff to one to five cups of coffee a month. In return, you get exclusive benefits such as special newsletters and behind-the-scenes content, as well as a shout-out here on our podcast. And today, I want to thank our Buy Me A Coffee members, Tom Nolan, Marta Martins, Ben Ludwig, Leslie Seal, Caroline Hubert, Mark Hillary, John Thomas III, Luis Hans, Erwin Menez, Orlando Black, Steve Knapp, Aaron Berger, James Coney, Kars Vresvik, Alasdair Townsend, Peter Abrahamson, Jim Oofadeju, Michael Fryer, Miller Renacido, David Dixon, José Jose Stankovic, Emerging Market Muser, Yarden Iftah, Tonica Thompson, Anderson da Silva, Kat Kramer, Peter Suffering, Anna Land, and someone who chose to remain anonymous. And if you too believe in the importance of independent journalism, and if you want to hear your name on our podcast, head over to buymeacoffee.com slash Brazilian Report and subscribe to one of our membership tiers. If you cannot make a monthly commitment, you can still tip us the occasional cup of coffee to give us the energy boost we need to cover a country as complex as Brazil and a region as complex as Latin America, and we appreciate all your support. Click on buymeacoffee.com slash Brazilian Report to find out more. Next week, former Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro will go to trial for instigating false claims over electoral fraud. Now, a new study reveals how YouTube's recommendation algorithm might have been a key weapon for him to firehose public discourse with falsehoods. My name is Gustavo Ribeiro. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Brazilian Report. This is Explaining Brazil. A fraud is no TSE, para não ter dúvida. Isso foi feito em 2014. In an effort to study Brazilian YouTube users' perceptions of political content, researchers from Mozilla, Instituto Vero, and Exeter University have detailed how a complex web-like influencer system of YouTube channels helped shape political narratives during the Brazilian 2022 election. This is in addition to YouTube's own recommendation algorithm, which also generates suggestions based on users' viewing patterns. I'd like to welcome this week's guests, Dr. Beatriz Bonami, Head of Science and Innovation at Brazil's Vedo Institute, Dr. Chico Camargo, a lecturer in computer science at the University of Exeter, 
and Becca Ricks, Head of Open Source Research and Innovation at Mozilla. Now, before we delve into the findings of the report, I want to ask you to talk a little bit about how important YouTube is in Brazil, and not only for entertainment, but also how it is used by people as a way to consume political content. Wow, Brazil is one of the most connected countries in the world. It's one of the largest online populations that we have. And YouTube and social media more broadly have been used a lot as a source of information and as a way for people to communicate with each other um, to a point where you find a lot of connections between YouTube and WhatsApp because I might be talking to you in this one social media platform, but I'm sending you content from another. So it really becomes the way in which content and information propagates um, from one person to another in Brazil. Uh, Beatrice? As we know, how citizens and populations access digital platforms is directly correlated to their idiosyncrasies and how they um, communicate and speak for themselves on a daily life. And in the case of Brazil and Latin America, for, its, uh, for uh, example, we have a huge culture of soap operas, of visuals, of videos, of narratives that has to do with how we access uh, uh, devices, has to do with how we access information, and ha has to do with how we look for uh, correlated content and trustworthy content online. And actually, uh, among youths, Uh, YouTube is the preferred platform from youth from 16 years old until they're 22. They have reported that their first access every day is on YouTube and that they uh, search for everything from entertainment to, uh, to uh, uh, manuals, to guidelines for educational content and for gaming, for example. So it is a huge platform that has to do with uh, by now. Uh, with a lot of Brazilian culture. Now I want to bring Becca into the discussion. Becca, YouTube's artificial intelligence systems are designed to maximize watch time. I mean, any social media platform is designed to keep users there. So in the case of YouTube, it is designed to learn from user behavior and recommend content that users will be drawn to. Now, what do we know about how the systems work exactly? Yeah, so we've been um, studying YouTube's recommender system at Mozilla for the last few years, largely because we do have concerns about some of the harms that are really difficult to document and study. Um, when we're talking about the recommender system, I think one of the concerns people have is uh, around a number of different factors that go into what gets recommended. Um, so YouTube has more recently talked about this idea of user satisfaction or well-being as sort of um, now being a driving metric uh, compared to previous years where they talked about, um, you know, engagement, watch time, um, and view views as sort of being a driver for uh, what gets recommended. Um, we've done a little bit of testing on our side to assess whether or not that's actually the case. And I think in general, the challenge you have is when, you know, There's a lot of opacity to how the recommender system works. Um, we as independent researchers outside can try to sort of study it and poke at and understand, um, you know, what are the different factors that go into this. But ultimately, I think what you're asking about is um, some of the emergent harms 
that come out of these systems. And I think, you know, this study is an example of, of why we need uh, more work in this space, studying the impact, studying the harms, studying sort of how the recommender system works so that we can look under the hood of the algorithm a bit. And Becca, to continue on something you've just said, are social media companies becoming less transparent in terms of how they collect data or how their APIs work, their recommendation systems work? I think it's complicated. I think you have a lot of new regulations in place, especially in Europe, that are mandating the release of transparency archives, APIs, other kinds of tools for researchers. So I think um, in that sense, you know, we are seeing a little bit more transparency from platforms. I think concerningly, though, there's not an incentives for platforms to give researchers necessarily meaningful access to data. So I think my concern is that, um, you know, as a lot of these regulations come into effect, that platforms will kind of, um, you know, point to a couple different things that they release that may or may not actually be um, useful to researchers and sort of say we've done transparency when that's not the case. So I, I think that there's a number of levers in place right now, some which, of which are regulatory, some of which are kind of public pressure on the platforms that didn't exist previously. But I think, of course, for me, the, the devil's in the details in terms of how is that going to imp get implemented and what's actually going to get released from platforms. Um, will we actually get sort of the level of transparency we need to um, study these platforms? So I think it's a, it's a big question mark right now. You mentioned in your study that the YouTube recommendation network is one of the most relevant networks for understanding the circulation of political content on the platform. Why so? So one of the things that happens a lot on YouTube is that you go there looking for something or maybe you just open the, the homepage like someone who's turning the TV on and very quickly you get recommended something else and something else that has created a bit of a narrative of rabbit holes and people being sent here and there. But what we really found from the data here is that you get sent a bit in circles. There were lots of the volunteers who participated in our study who you know, got recommended more of the same type and more videos of the same producer and eventually videos of related producers. And you end up circulating. And by circulating, I really mean just receiving lots of recommendations of this little island, this community of lots of um, YouTubers, lots of channels, sometimes will be news channels or professional, you know, content producers and all, lots of things. And ultimately that ends up um, forming people's minds, kind of shaping how they see the world. And that happens not only in politics, but it has a very clear impact in politics. That's, that's kind of where a lot of our concerns lie, because if I'm looking for football and I get more videos about football, that's probably okay. But the moment that I'm, for example, looking for content, let's say, uh, that's about my local city and something that's happening here, and then I get recommended some kind of conspiracy theory about the demise of democracy and how we should burn it all down, hey, suddenly that, you know, that's crossing a line there somewhere and... YouTube is just feeding that content because one video recommends another and YouTube often will say, well, we, we didn't put that content out there. And sometimes the, com the content doesn't even explicitly violate any of their community guidelines. Nevertheless, it can be very harmful. 
because a lot of the content that we now consume online is really the outcome of these recommendation engines over which we have very little control. And that's why, you know, not only in this project, but in other projects led by Mozilla, we've been trying to just understand how much control do we actually have over these things. There's lots of little buttons saying, stop recommending this and that. Do they actually work? Do they actually make any difference? Well, the short answer is no, not, not really. And we, that's why I really echo what Becca said. We need more transparency. We need more studies. We, because we use things like YouTube and Google and things like that as if they were a public library. But these are not public libraries. These are companies that earn money through ads. Now, Beatrice, uh, Chico said something that reminded me of Godwin's Law, which is that old internet adage asserting that, quote, as an online discussion grows longer, the probability of comparison involving Nazis or Hitler approaches one. Uh, do you think we could say something similar about how the YouTube algorithm for related videos work? And why does the consumer sovereignty and the political sovereignty paradox brings back to so many authoritarian regimes and um, examples in history? Because in authoritarian scenario, what happens is that they can control which information reaches the citizens. And that is the problem because the citizens don't have the full picture of what is happening and how they should make decisions. And that's why they uh, make a, co a comparison between the consumer sovereignty online and how authoritarian regimes took place in the past. And this is something that can threat democracies and that citizens should be more aware about. Because sometimes when you expose these facts to citizens, they claim they are aware of the political implications of making decisions online. However, they, they uh, surpass the algorithm's force and feedback in content that is correlated to their preferences. So because the algorithm thinks they are consuming content online and not making decisions. So that's why we need to be more clear about what this implies. And we also need to be more mindful in, in talking about this also in regulations and in media and uh, in information literacies. Uh, acti activities and initiatives. Now, the overwhelming majority of respondents in your study self-declared as politically left-wing. And, I mean, one thing shocked me, none on the right. Um, does that skew the results in any way? Certainly, certainly. The um, people who make the project inevitably will skew the results. Um, that was actually a big challenge that we had because we wanted to communicate to people that, for instance, this was not a research project about fact-checking. It was not about misinformation. Nevertheless, lots of people, when they saw certain types of content online, usually content that they were against, they would say that's political. Whereas if they saw something that they agreed with, maybe they wouldn't see that as political. So our study was also about that, about what people consider political. And yeah, it would be very good to, to do a similar study, really including more volunteers who consider themselves right wing. And we tried to reach out to audiences like that. But a lot of them were very skeptical of the, the organizations who were conducting the study. Some of them expressed concerns about like, oh, you're going to use my data to train a machine learning model. I don't want that. And 
you know, fair enough. It's fair to have those concerns. And I think that shows a real challenge of kind of contemporary citizen science. Like if you really want to do a study that will incorporate how different people in different demographics think, you really need to find ways to reach out to them so that they can trust you and they can understand that you're not trying to do something behind their back. So yeah, that was a major challenge that we had. And we were fortunate that the volunteers who participated really, really, you know, put in the work, it was lovely. But that ended up being a limitation that there is probably some extra side of, of YouTube that maybe we just didn't see. It's hard to tell, but that, that's a limitation of any kind of study like that. We'll be right back. This week's podcast is supported by Dalpozo Advogados. Dalpozo represents some of Brazil's largest infrastructure groups and helps foreign clients navigate the country's complicated legal and regulatory systems. During the May 10th Brazil Summit in New York City, an event hosted by the Financial Times and of which the Brazilian Report was a supporting partner, we caught up with Luis Namuda, a Brazilian engineer, serial entrepreneur and public speaker. Luis Namuda has founded 15 companies and launched or invested in over 300 businesses around Brazil and abroad. Our conversation was recorded in New York City and has been featured over the past few episodes of Explaining Brazil. And here's episode number five, the final installment of our conversation. Namoda, you have been involved in energy projects. And I mean, President Lula of Brazil has pledged to make Brazil's energy matrix carbon neutral by the end of the decade. Brazil already has a very green electricity matrix. Is it possible to expand these renewable sources in the short and medium term so the country can meet its climate goals? I mean, is Brazil on track for this? I think Brazil must have a well-balanced energy matrix prioritizing different sources of energy in different parts of our country. For example, in the northeast, we have constant winds. So, it's the place to produce electric energy from wind farms. Nonetheless, in the north and center of country, we have huge rivers, like Amazon River. So, in that place, hydroelectric plants can be the choice. In other parts of Brazil, you can prioritize biomass and biogas and solar plants. So, it depends, in large extent, which energy source is the most abundant at the, a particular location. In general, for the future, I would say that green hydrogen will be very important for many countries as it will be for Brazil. And Amuda, you and another fellow engineer have conceived a green energy solution, right? A machine called Vorex? Yeah, that was a dream of us to solve two problems the world was facing. Problem number one, the normal amount of waste generated every day by our lifestyle. And problem number two, the growing need of energy demanded by, the, by people and companies. So we put waste inside the vorex. The vorex hits that waste and transforms that waste in gases, synergic gases. Uh, and these gases heat up water within the machine to power an engine and generate electricity. 
We are selling Vorex for hospitals and uh, public sector and industries that want to have a green uh, seal. Uh, and the Vorex helps them to have this green seal because everything that goes out of Vorex is only water. Thank you very much, Luis Namuda. That's it for today. Now let's get back to the show. Becca, how much people's perceptions can change if they consume their news on social media as opposed to established media outlets? Yeah, I mean, just to build off of what Beatrice was saying in in their last comment, I think um, one of the things we've been talking about generally in our work is um, about why it's important to study people alongside algorithms. Um, I think one of the unique values of a study like this one is we're not just sort of looking at um, uh, simulated behaviors. We're not using like bot accounts to try to see like, how does the algorithm change on a whole when this happens? I think we're really looking at people's lived experiences on these platforms. And I think that's the strength in um, working with crowdsourced data. in terms of the insights from uh, this particular report, I mean, I, I think what was really interesting generally was the degree to which people flagged videos as political that uh, someone maybe outside of that cultural context or outside of that political moment might not have understood as political. So, um, you know, YouTube might have developed its classifier for being able to identify election related content. But I think what this study showed is that there's a much broader spectrum of videos and content that um, Brazilians who were part of this study would have identified as political or maybe touching on a political touch point. And so I, I think that to me is kind of one of the most interesting insights I took away from the study is like the real need to understand the linguistic and cultural context and the degree to which maybe the tools YouTube itself has for identifying and studying and and monitoring um, some of this video content might uh, not be working um, super well, especially when you look at places outside of the U.S. Now, Shiku, during the 2018 election, YouTube's trending feature boosted far-right channels that spread outright lies about politics, some of which, according to The Intercept, had even been banned on Facebook. And I mean, it really takes a lot to get banned from Facebook. Did the same thing happen in 2022? It certainly did. We had many videos in our study that even though we initially had them flagged or we got, we collected the ID of the video that was recommended to someone or identified as political, when a couple of days later we went in to collect the whole transcript of the video, title, thumbnail, you know, all the information about the video, the video was gone. Some of them, or in fact, a large fraction, seems to have just been deleted by the authors themselves. Lots of these are long YouTube lives. um, And the authors often had reasons such as, you know, they don't want others to find out, or sometimes the video just wasn't that relevant to stay in their channel. There's a lot of different incentives because also many people are trying to do YouTube for a living. So there's a lot of extra incentives there. And then there were also many videos that was just were just removed because they violated community guidelines, because they were abusive, because they 
you know, criticized this or that with very foul language. Um, and on top of it all, there were many videos that were just published and then just removed one day later with like one or two views in total. That I think was one of the kind of, in my opinion, one of the most interesting aspects of this study that we got in touch with, in a sense, the lower end of the iceberg, not just that viral video that everyone has seen, but also the content production of all those videos that no one is going to watch because maybe the YouTuber is just not famous. And in a sense, the study ended up being not only about what content, what political content is being recommended to Brazilians on YouTube, but what political content are Brazilians producing on YouTube? And that's a different question. Uh, Beatrice, Brazil is debating a bill to regulate social media platforms. The bill's rapporteur in the House told the Brazilian report that he wants to make platforms liable for third-party content when they get money to increase the reach of that content. Is that something that uh, you agree with? Is that a positive solution? As we grow and live in the digital age, it is important to regulate digital platforms, not because they are corporate or their corporations or private spheres or big techs or uh, whichever they can be, but because we spend a lot of time online. Some people spend more time online than uh, when compared to their time offline. And when we have a, a scenario that the time online is not regulated, which means that there are no laws uh, or there are no rules, this is a problem. This is a problem because people interact and there are real problems that happen. That happens also online, as we can see through many, many examples of hateful speech, of harmful speech, of harmful content, and so on, so on. So, and uh, so I appreciate the um, the scenario in which we are uh, Brazil is trying to regulate platforms. Actually, the whole Latin America has been doing a lot of uh, effort in doing so. However, uh, to uh, freely and to to more precisely regulate platforms, we need uh, we need a more accurate and a more thorough analysis of the scenario. We need an analysis also on the data extractivism that happens in those places. For example, in Brazil, uh, the uh, the big techs they have a huge data extractivism sites, especially among uh, vulnerable and marginalized communities. And uh, also uh, data stewardship and and so on so on, and this is something that needs to be more uh, that needs to be better defined on on the laws on the regulations because this depends it they and has many uh, shades according to the country it is applied on. So in the case of Brazil, it's something. In the case of Indonesia or some other country in Asia, will be something different. And uh, and to do that, we need a, a hybrid approach. We need a bottom up, which is media information literacy curriculums, uh, so people are more aware about the situation. The, the, people are more aware about the uh, big corporations and uh, private sphere and digital platforms, uh, and also top down, in which uh, applies to governments, uh, uh, the big techs, and bilateral agencies. In what way can digital platforms such as YouTube drive and deepen political polarization, Becca? And I mean, 
how can we solve this pickle? Yeah, I mean, just, you know, building off of what Shiko and Beatrice have both said, I think that the answer right now is greater transparency. I think one of the challenges is um, internally, these platforms run lots of their own studies to better understand political polarization, um, whether or not filter bubbles are a problem. And so there's tons of internal testing that happens. We don't really have much information about what those tests are, what the outcomes were, what kinds of metrics they were looking at, what the goals of that research were. And so I think as a starting point, um, cracking open these platforms in some way to scrutiny from independent researchers, from academics, um, and civil society like um, like Instituto Vero or uh, University of Exeter, I think um, is really important to be able to understand what's happening. I think the challenge is um, you don't have a diversity of viewpoints um, that are being expressed within a lot of these big companies. It's really um, you know unclear whether you have sociologists or folks from lots of different disciplines who are studying these issues. Um, you know, and have access to that data. And so I think it's really, really important that when we talk about regulations, we're talking about to what degree is this empowering a third party ecosystem of researchers who can study and vet and monitor what's happening on these platforms. Um, I'll say like the, the work that we're doing at Mozilla Foundation, and, um, you know, we sort of created this new open source research and investigations team. Um, a lot of what we're looking at is How can we get access to some of that data um, via official or unofficial means? And also looking at what kinds of um, regulations are coming, are, are happening. So I mentioned before, in the EU, you have the Digital Services Act, which is mandating the release of some of these researcher tools like better APIs, um, but also uh, research APIs. And as I mentioned before, I think my concern is that you know, when we actually see some of these regulations come into effect, uh, will they actually uh, translate to meaningful transparency and access, right? Because the last thing you want to see is sort of a research API that's released, and then only a handful of researchers get access to it. And it's, it's not sort of journalists, civil society, and sort of the broader ecosystem of independent researchers who won't have access. So I, I think like, going back to that point, I think that's going to be a meaningful way for us to be able to crack open these platforms and be able to study these algorithms in a meaningful way. Thank you, Beatrice Bonami, Chico Camargo, and Becca Ricks. And if you like explaining Brazil, please give us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. It takes only a second and it really helps us reach a broader audience. Or better yet, you can sign up for The Brazilian Report, the journalistic engine behind this podcast. We have a subscription-based business model and your memberships fuel our journalism and keep us going and growing. Thanks to our subscribers, we have been able to cover Brazil and Latin America extensively, and we have won or been shortlisted for multiple international journalism awards. More recently, our newsletters won the Best Newsletter Prize in the Americas by the World Association of Newspapers and News Publishers for a small or local newsroom. In order to keep doing that work, we really need your support, 
go to brazilian.report slash subscribe. I'm Gustavo Ribeiro. Thanks for listening. Explaining Brazil will be back next week.